Hi, it's Brendan here. And before we get into this episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show with the brilliant Dominic Lawson, I wanted to draw your attention to how you can support this podcast. The best way to support us is by making a monthly donation. One-off donations are great, but a monthly donation makes a huge difference to how we can operate. Just £5 a month can make a huge difference to how we do things here. So if you are in favour of our free and fearless journalism and our brilliant podcasts, the best thing to do is to give a regular monthly donation. All you need to do is to go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. That's www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. Now, on with the show. You're talking about a doubling in household electricity prices. I understand where it comes from at the sort of dark green level, that it sees man as a curse upon the planet. Mm. I genuinely am baffled by the political class. They're being swept up in this. It is a kind of moral vanity. I think it Mm. is the sense that when we walk on the world stage, we want to be seen as the good guys. And of course, it's very nice for them to go to these conferences and people to say, oh, you're doing a wonderful job, Mm. you know. Of course, it doesn't mean anything for the people back home. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Dominic Lawson. Dominic is a very important figure in modern British journalism. He is a columnist for the Sunday Times and the Daily Mail. He was editor of The Spectator from 1990 to 1995, and he was editor of The Sunday Telegraph from 1995 to 2005. In 2014, he was elected as president of the English Chess Federation, He writes on a broad range of issues, and in my view, his voice has been particularly valuable on some of the major moral and political flashpoints of recent years, including, of course, Brexit and also climate change, progress and liberty. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. I want to kick off by asking you a little bit of a broad question about where we're at politically. So, If you believe in democracy, and if you were, particularly if you were pro-Brexit, and if you are Eurosceptic, there seem to be many reasons to be optimistic right now. We have a government that is pretty much devoted to leave. The three and a half year project of the liberal elite to thwart Brexit didn't work. And things seem to be going pretty well according to uh, majoritarian opinion, which is Eurosceptic and which is that we should no longer be members of the European Union. So despite the caricatures and fear-mongering of some people in the media establishment, there does seem to be quite a few reasons to be optimistic about where politics is going. Do, Do you feel optimistic about the moment that we're living in? Well, certainly much more optimistic than we were. You must have been, I certainly was, six months ago, when it looked as though essentially the referendum result was going to be stolen by the most extraordinary procedures by MPs who claimed that they would honour the referendum when they were elected in 2017, and then immediately afterwards did everything they could to dishonour both the referendum and indeed what they had pledged in the subsequent general election. And it was, I would say, a contract on the British people that was being attempted, aided by the Speaker, you know, who made no secret of the fact that although his job was meant to be an impartial umpire, mm. was basically the Lionel Messi trying to sort of kick the ball into the, into the net. And of course, he was able to do that because he would say, well, I'm just representing the voice of Parliament. And it was true that the vast majority, the vast majority of MPs, I mean, in the Labour Party, all but about six, were against Brexit. So, I mean, he, he wasn't actually misleading when he said, mm. I'm missing. The problem was Parliament wasn't representing the people. And if Parliament's not representing the people, you have a cataclysmic issue. I mean, it, it is unbelievably dangerous. Mm. And I, I was genuinely frightened, actually, about British democracy. I thought, well, what would be, what would be the outcome? 
if, if this were to happen. I mean, very, very dangerous. And it would make what we see in certain other countries in Europe look like uh, chicken feed by mm. comparison. I mean, we see disturbances there, but I think this would have been on another level after the referendum we had. So compared to that, it's <laughs> kind of, you know, the sun has got its hat on. <laughs> and, and you're right when you say that the government, it, it, it's not a new government in the sense that it's still the Conservatives, yeah. but it's inherently a new government because its outlook is entirely different. And in particular, and we see it with all this row about Dominic Cummings, I must declare an interest, he, he's a friend of mine. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, take, take that, you know, in, into your calculation. But of course, the entire apparatus and the treasury in particular was horrified by Brexit. And Theresa May was, I think, unusual actually in a politician is that she really much preferred the company of civil servants, the company of politicians, let alone journalists. So she was very much a, a creature of that. Mm. Um, and also, which is not inherently a criticism, but a profoundly conventional person. And I would say profoundly small C conservative, mm. you know, so the degree of radicalism was something that she really couldn't cope with. And she was honest about it. Was So when she was, because she was an honest woman. So I remember there was some press conference after one of her big speeches and a German journalist said, so do you think Brexit was worth it and a good idea? And she refused to answer, <laughs> which is A, extraordinary, mm. but it was honest of her because she knew that her, her view was, no, I don't think it's a good idea, but she couldn't say that. So she refused to answer the question, mm. which is kind of like the most basic question you could possibly ask. So yes, it's, yes. it's much better. I, I think you capture there something that I think some people underestimate, which is the, the enormity and the magnitude of the crisis that we have just lived through. And I think it is really is captured in the, in the sense of parliament versus the people. I mean, that is what it boiled down to very often. And that's what it felt like to many ordinary people, I'm sure, that we had this remain a parliament. 95% uh, of Labour MPs in particular voted remain. I think over 70% of MPs in general voted remain. And then, of course, the population at large was in favour of, of Brexit. And that, I think, uh, spoke to an incredible tension in the nation uh, not only in relation to a, a disagreement between the public and the political class over what to do about Europe, but also a, a more fundamental question about who who is the sovereign power in this country? Is it Parliament? Is it the people? And what is the relationship between those two things? So, so how how close do you think we came to a constitutional crisis of historical and possibly even um, incredibly detrimental consequences? Well, I think. I mean, it's hard to sort of measure it, but, but very close, very close. And of course, you also had the Supreme Court <laughs> with this, I mean, a really extraordinary thing. So you had the High Court, which it went to first, this, this, this attempt to, to stop the government, uh, essentially getting on with Brexit. And the High Court was unanimous in saying this was not justiciable. Mm. It was the master of the roles, the head of the Queen's bench. You know, they were the most senior four, the most senior four active judges said, this is not justiciable. It then went to the Supreme Court, 11 nil. Now, I'm sorry, it was to have 11 nil on a completely unprecedented ruling saying that the courts could intervene in Parliament, which has never been the case, never been the case. It was a fix. Mm. It was a political fix. And that was a huge scandal, in my view. And, and by the way, I think that kind of further enraged people. And of course, all I would say was that it was in a way, I think where, and this was Johnson advised by Cummings, and I wrote this at the time, and I said, furniture is being smashed up by Johnson and Cummings. I mean, the, the prorogation. You know, it's like one of those Wild West scenes where the fight breaks out and you see chairs and tables <laughs> all over the place. But I said, this is very important. This, this smashing up demonstrates to the public that this government, that Boris Johnson, is determined, absolutely will stop at nothing to get this done. So therefore, and all the, let's call them Remainers, who said, aha, now we've forced you, because the effect was to force you to ask for a delay. It destroyed Theresa May that she had to ask for a delay. It will now destroy Boris Johnson, our cunning plan, our cunning plan. And of course, the public 
They don't pay a huge amount of attention to politics, but they're not flaming morons. You know, uh, they could see the very fact that there was a spectacular bust-up, the very fact that he was said to have, quotes, lied to the Queen, which was, by the way, nonsense, because you don't say to the Queen why you're doing it. You simply ask, you simply say, I would like a prorogation. Queen says yes. So you can't lie by asking a question, by definition, a question. So all that was. But anyway, the idea that he was, quotes, lying to the Queen, the idea that he was up against the judges and they'd gone 11 nil against him, actually was a huge asset to him Mm -hmm. because it meant come the election, he could say, look, I know that I've had to ask for this delay, but believe me, I have been trying not to. Mm. And basically people who were in favour of Brexit, including many, you could say, long-time Labour voters, said, yup, he's shown us by this kind of huge parliamentary dust-up and this battle with the palace, if you like, and battle with the government. This government has proven itself to be acting for us in what we want. And so I think that was one reason why he got such a significant majority, which was bigger than I think most people had expected. That really captures actually one of the most intriguing contradictions in contemporary British politics, which is that we have this radical vote, you know, the vote for Brexit is a demand for a radical break from the status quo as it had existed from the mid-1970s onwards. And it has fallen to a conservative party, Mm. and the words conservative and radical Mm. are juxtaposed Mm. to each Mm -hmm. other, to push that vote through. And uh, as you Mm. were saying, Theresa May refused uh, to answer the question of whether Brexit was a good thing or a bad thing, you know, driven by her small C conservative instincts. Whereas now we have a government that does seem more willing to stand up to the judges and the elite or, or the dark forces, as they sometimes refer to them. While on the other side, you have uh, supposedly radical Corbynistas and Labourites who are rallying behind the judges and rallying behind the establishment as it has previously existed and trying to defend the status quo. Yeah. So we're in an incredibly strange moment. And, and I wonder, one thing I wanted to ask you is how far do you think the Conservative Party can go along the radical route. Yeah. Do, do you think there will come a point where they will have to pull themselves up? I mean, I think we've been a little bit careful uh, in our terminology here because uh, certainly Brexit was radical in terms of a, a break with, if you like, our foreign policy, you know, since the early 1970s or even perhaps before then, the late 60s, or even 1960, whenever Millen started. But in another way, I think what the European Union do, was doing was is profoundly right. radical. Right. I mean, the idea of having a single European currency, mm-hmm. the idea of having no no borders at all between 27 countries, the idea of a kind of, well, non-functioning pan-national democracy, the European Parliament, based on really no demos that anyone can possibly understand or grasp or identify with, really. I think that was extraordinarily radical extraordinarily radical. And you could say that the Conservative Party was, if you like, reasserting some of its traditional virtues, which Mm. is it's a national party. It's the party of the nation state. And it it believes in deeply in national sovereignty, whereas the Labour Party had become very internationalist. I mean, interesting, you mentioned, so you see my point. I think think it sits – it sits well with the traditions of the Conservative Party, uh, what's happened. And that's why, if you like, it's not a, it doesn't prove anything, but that's why you find that the Conservative Party at grassroots level is absolutely behind it and has been for a very long time. So the problem for Conservative MPs was if they were very pro-European, uh, that was when they had difficulty. I mean, you mentioned Corbyn. Of course, Corbyn was, I suppose is in a way, overtly in the follow of of Tony Benn, Mm -hmm. was his starry-eyed acolyte. And Corbyn, his instincts on the EU were profoundly Eurosceptic. And in fact, he had a more consistent Eurosceptic voting record, probably even than Bill Cash on the Conservative, if you were to check. I suspect you might find he's even more consistent. And I remember writing at the Sunday Times just the week before the election, and I said, Labour are going to lose... And everyone's going to blame Corbyn, but actually it was the centrists who absolutely stuffed the party. They really stuffed it. And, you know, I'm not a supporter of Corbyn kind of 
philosophically, but I think he was nearer kind of the instincts of uh, the referendum result for sure than almost everybody else in his party. And he, it was a loss of his battle and one or two people around him. And we're now going to see Keir Starmer become leader of the Labour Party, who was instrumental in a strategy which utterly failed, was catastrophic for the Labour Party. And, it, and I'm sure others know these figures. I mean, I think I'm right in saying that all but about five of the seats they lost were in leave voting Labour constituencies. Mm. I mean, it's it's clear to see. Mm -hmm. So I think Corbyn, I, I felt sorry for him, but I think his heart was in the right place. And you probably remember the morning after the referendum result, he in Parliament Square said, we must immediately implement Article 50. Immediately. Yeah. yeah. So that was his, that was his instinct. Yeah. You know, and he was delighted. I mean, and you could see he was delighted. I mean, he could hardly contain his pleasure, tried hard to, but it wasn't successful. <laughs> you know, and if you remember, he wasn't even able to form his first shadow cabinet unless he basically agreed to put a cap on his Euroscepticism and that he would quotes campaign for remain so it's blighted his his leadership from the very beginning you're listening to the brendan o'neill show if you like this podcast and spike's other podcasts and also the articles and essays that spiked publishes every day please think about giving us a donation spike's content is free and we want to keep it free and donations really help us to do that Head over to Spike's donation page now at www.spiked-online.com. I actually do feel sorry for Corbyn sometimes, precisely mm. because mm. of the the destruction of his Euroscepticism. Now mm. he's he he played a role in that. He's not a child. He he kind of caved in to these demands that came from the more centrist parts of his party. But I, I, I've often felt that he this is this is a man who had a good position on Europe inherited from the likes of Tony Benn, and then it, it got ruined in the way in which the Labour Party was going. And in fact, I was going to mention the piece that you wrote, which I think was one of your very interesting pieces about uh, how you talked about the the responsibility for Labour's defeat would lie not with the hard left, but with the centrist Ramona, Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair, Tony wing, Blair. Yeah. wing of the party. And so one thing I want to touch on with you is the question of what happened to left wing Euroscepticism, because I think I'm right in thinking that in 1975, you voted against the European economic community. I voted to, to leave. To leave. Yeah, because we, we were in it, you see. So it was, yes, it was right. the same, because um, David Dimbley got it wrong on the referendum night. Yeah. He said, the British people who voted to join, the British people never voted for John. They were just joined. Yeah. We were joined. We yeah. never voted to join. Yeah. And I, <laughs> am I right in thinking that one of the influences of your decision was Peter Shaw? Yes. And so I think one of the things yeah. that's very interesting, and see, I think there's a really mm. interesting tension between Corbyn and Corbynism. So Corbyn comes from that slightly old world, and he will be very familiar with Peter Shaw and Tony Benn, of course, and Barbara Castle, uh, classic left-wing Eurosceptics. Whereas Corbynistas tend to be a bit more millennial, not so historically sussed, and, you know, often uncritically pro-EU. So I wonder if we go from Peter Shaw in 1975, inspiring people like you and many, many others to vote to leave to a Labour Party which, uh, where 95% of its MPs voted to remain. What do you think has happened to that wing of politics? Well, I think, can I turn it around a bit and say, I think one of the unhealthy things about this whole issue of our relationship with the European Union or the common market is its greater support has always been from people whose parties are failing democratically in this country. Right, yeah. So when Margaret Thatcher and the Conservatives were saying, you know, we got to be in this thing. They were basically uh, in a wrecked state domestically. They had lost two elections in 1974. They were intensely demoralized. And they were terrified, rightly or wrongly, by, funnily enough, Benism. They were terrified that we would have a socialist government that would do all the things that they feared socialist governments would do. And they saw the European Union, or the crown market then was, as a check on those kinds of policies. Mm -hmm. 
So it was like, oh, because remember Hailsham was talking about elective dictatorship at the mm. time, who was a very senior figure in the Tory party. And this was a way of getting around the, quote, elective dictatorship. Then you have, uh, in, I think, 1989, Jacques Delors coming to the TUC Congress. They sing Frere Jacques, and he says, don't you worry, you know, Margaret Thatcher may seem to have hegemony in this country, but under my proposals, I think he said 75% of the laws in, in this country will be made in Brussels. And Delors was a socialist, mm-hmm. good socialist of a French, you know, classic French type and a very impressive man, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, single-minded. So, so Labour Party, which was then thinking, oh, will never not have a Thatcher in number 10, sees this as a way of blocking Thatcherism. By the way, she too, because she then, after Delors, she did her very, now I guess, notorious Bruges speech, which was a reaction, which only inspired then Labour Party to say, oh, so Margaret Thatcher's really furious. She thinks the EU is stopping her, her in her tracks. Well, we know what side we're on. Well, all of this is very dangerous because... It, what it means is, oh, if we fail to convince the British people of our agenda, we'll find that we can get round that. That's not a problem. We'll find our salvation in, in, in Europe. And so the Conservatives, I think, were first doing that. Yeah. And then Labour. I think that's a really important point, which is the thing that has always energised Europhilia it has tended to be a feeling of distance or disconnection with the British electorate. And so the more that you feel separated from the normal processes of democracy, which is that laws ought to be made by people whom we have some control over, the more you feel disconnected from that for whatever reason, the more you feel drawn towards the structures and the ideology of Brussels, which is that we will, we can do these things for you away from the crowd, away from the rabbit. And by the way, I mean, it was fairly clear that the, the intellectual fathers like Monet uh, they were completely clear about this, that it was, yeah. uh, it was straight out of Plato, the guardians, you know. And of course, the way they interpreted what happened in Europe in the 1930s was, we see where democracy leads us. Yes. You know, we see that, you know, Hitler was, yeah. you know, okay, he was elected into the a dominant position in the Reichstag through a democratic process. Look what happened. And this is the lesson you, you had to learn. Now, of course, arguably, that is still believed, and I understand why, in large parts of, of Europe. But the idea that Britons, that British people should believe that is a, is a travesty. Yeah. You know, we didn't have fascism. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, so fine. If, if you think this is the only escape from your fascist electorate, go ahead. But, you know, don't, don't yeah. include us in it. <laughs> One of the worst lessons drawn from the the horrors of the Second World War was that democracy itself is a problem. And over time, that gets institutionalized in the new structures that emerge in Europe, which essentially are about insulating the political class from the from popular pressure. So, and that takes me on to the, the next question I wanted to ask you, because I think you're one of the voices who has um, insisted that the vote for Brexit was about something big and political and democratic rather than about narrow economic interests. So in my view, the vote for Brexit was in many ways about breaking down that insulation between ordinary people in the political establishment and saying, listen, we want more ability to put pressure on people. We want to remove some of these filters, these unnecessary filters between our opinion and what happens in the lawmaking institutions of the country. Of course, what happens with Remainers and others is that they – constantly said to Brexit voters, this is going to hurt you economically, you might lose your job, you might your wage might be cut, and so on. And, and I think that more than anything captured how uh, little they understood the Brexit sentiment. So, so one thing that you wrote very well which is that this was about a visceral attachment to the idea of self-government. And I, I wonder, how, how would you describe that if, if Remainers are listening? How would you describe the, uh, the essential nature of the vote for Brexit as opposed to their misinterpretation? Well, I think in a way this showed the poverty of the Remain argument because what they seem to be saying to, and certainly that was a Cameron line, saying to the electorate was, well, we think the European Union is pretty shitty too. But you know what? 
it's good for trade and it's just a question of money and you'll be 500 pounds a year or four, whatever, 4,000 pounds, whoever you are. And we think we can, we will just buy you off with that. And I think it was very insulting, mm. actually. Mm. I think it was very insulting. I think people felt deeply, well, passionate about it, mm. about this sense of self-government, which, and by the way, again, to sort of look at us in contrast to many of the European countries, where I think there's a sort of profound difference. We have had, okay, it wasn't, we didn't till the 1920s have universal suffrage for both men and women, but we've had what you would call a form of democracy and self-rule for centuries. Mm. For centuries. I mean, okay, the, <laughs> with the Civil War, but nonetheless, you know, it's very, very deep rooted. And we, as I said, we did not have periods of fascism where all the institutions of the state were smashed or discredited or both. But all the other members of the European Union, virtually, not all, but almost all. Mm. So France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, all the original ones um, emerging from basically a massive war on their land caused by fascism and the complete corruption of, of their ruling elites. And of course, the Holocaust. Mm. Greece only joined the European Union from uh, leaving the rule of the colonels, I mean, mm. outside of fascism. Yeah. Portugal, they don't call it fascism, but military dictatorship anyway. Spain, Franco, it, out of that. Mm. So th for all of those countries, when the EU says we stand for democracy, mm that kind of rings true for them because it, they were kind of contiguous, contemporaneous. The escape from forms of fascism or dictatorship and democracy came with membership of the European Union. We joined anyway in, 19, what's it, 1973, I think. Right, so we didn't join. We, we delayed and delayed and delayed it. But it was nothing to do with that. In our case, it was due to, I think it was at a very low ebb, it was at the lowest ebb in our sort of national self-confidence. And we sort of came out with our hands up, really. Mm. So, you know, our histories are very, very different. Mm. And you haven't mentioned it, but I think the issue of, of borders is, is hugely significant. Mm. Because what does it mean to be a country to mm. us? Well, one of the things that defines a country, how, how would you define it? It has a, it has a, it has a border around mm. it. And the idea that, so I think the figures are, they're quite difficult to put, put so graphically, but I think the net immigration was about every year the size of the city of Exeter, more or less. And I think people felt, hold on a minute, is this going to go on indefinitely? And what does it mean in terms of pressure on social services, pressure on housing, uh, pressure on transport, pressure on the social security budget? At a time of, of quotes, I mean, you can argue about austerity. So it was very convenient for the conservatives to say, well, we'll get in all these people, the vast majority of whom will be paying taxes, um, but we won't, we won't provide the additional infrastructure that this massive increase in population requires mm. if people are not to have bigger and bigger queues. So it was a throat-slitting exercise politically. Mm. And this issue of borders, and we see it now with what's going on in, in Europe, is enormous. And it goes to the heart of what people think about as their country. And, of course, made far worse by the fact that the Conservatives said, well, here's our, you know, we will limit migration to the net, you know, uh, tens of thousands. Absolutely knowing that there was no way they could make any commitment with, because look at the passport you've got. It says <laughs> it's a European passport. Yeah. Every, everyone in this 500 million has an absolute right, yeah. an absolute right to come here no matter what. I mean, people, again, people are not that stupid. They understand what that means. Yeah. And I think if you're an island, this, in some visceral way, it strikes home. If you're, if you're on the continental landmass, well, the border doesn't quite mean as much anyway, because you know it's all crisscrossing. <laughs> well, by the way, though, the Swiss, despite being right in the middle of it, are able to remain outside the yeah. EU. Yeah. And the Swiss, I don't know whether you've ever interviewed anyone from there, but I mean, they are, they're intensely passionate about self-government. I mean, they, they really are in a way that you don't see anywhere else in Europe. Mm. I went there to talk to them about it because I was very interested. This was when Cameron called the referendum. I went there in 2013. And their passion for self-government is extraordinary. And mm. there is no mm. way, no way on earth that they would ever agree to that loss of self-government. Mm. So it doesn't, it's not just because 
we're an island. I think that probably increases it. And, and we sort of look west as well as southeast. Yeah. But nonetheless, I think the Swiss are an interesting lesson to us. I think the borders issue is incredibly important. Mm. And the caricature of anyone who is interested in borders is that you are a kind of blinkered nationalist and you don't care about other people and you are or a, a little Englander, as, as Brexiteers are often referred to. But I think what a lot of people appreciate is that one reason borders are incredibly important is because that's the way in which democracy is manifested. And it's within the national territory that issues like democracy and citizenship gain real substantial meaning. And I think a lot of people in the UK in particular, but also in um, France and the Netherlands after their votes against the European constitution in 2005 were just rubbished by Brussels uh, or, or in Ireland and Greece and Italy, all of whom have had either votes ignored or things imposed on them by Brussels that they didn't want. I think there's been a growing awareness that this this supposedly cosmopolitan, liberal, open-minded desire to erase borders is actually driven by an ideology that is very problematic and which calls into question the existence of nations uh, uh, per se, but also the thing that nations embody, which is the popular will and the yeah. democratic will. And I think a lot of Brexit voters, I think, had a very keen understanding of that problem. Yeah. And of course, we see it in the um, United States, Working class voters in the United States, why do they like Trump? Because Trump says, we're not going to have an infinite number of Mexicans coming along, you know, to take your jobs. Yeah. Well, is that racist? Well, no, I think it's, it's not racist. It's saying we've lived here. This is where we are. Why should we be simply chaff? to, you know, some big company that says, oh, we can have as many as we want. And it was very interesting that it was originally the Republican Party who were most keen on having a very open border with Mexico. Yeah. It was the business owners. And I was very struck that Bernie Sa yeah. Sanders said, oh, the Koch brothers, or whatever they're called, you know, these billionaires, <laughs> they're in favour of open borders. You know, I'm not in favour of open borders, because what does it mean? And I think that going back to this question of is it about the economy – I looked at the, at the um, Migration Advisory Committee, uh, who produced papers. This was over many years, and what the, they, they, it's very hard to know the the results of open borders and and free movement. But what their own best guess was, the effect was to depress wages at the bottom, and it was to enhance wages at the top. Now, the. There's quite small amounts, but it did. So, of course, it hunts at the top because, I mean, maybe you can have a cheaper Polish plumber or whatever it ha happens to be. So I think people weren't being irrational anyway. I mean, le leave aside the issue of it's more than money. I think even on terms of their own financial interests, I think probably it was rational of people at the top of the income distribution to vote to remain. And I think it was yeah. probably rational of people at the bottom of the income distribution to vote for leave, even if they, I think their instincts were probably correct in terms of their own interests. The capitalist elites, I know that's a very old fashioned phrase, mm. but the capitalist elites attachment to the idea of open borders as expressed in the European Union right now is very interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, you see left wing protesters these days who will wave placards saying borders equals death. You know, they have this incredibly instinctively anti-borders mentality. And you think back to someone like James Connolly, obviously mm. a hardcore Irish Republican socialist who wrote brilliantly about the essential nature of borders and the essential nature of national control over everything, uh, what comes in, what goes out, to the very project of democracy and to the very project of self-determination. So there's been so many fascinating shifts in the way in which these issues are understood. But but one thing I wanted to yeah. ask you in relation to where we go next in, in this discussion is because one of the things that concerns me, not necessarily in, an, in a negative way, Remain versus Leave might be over in, in the sense of how it existed over the past three and a half years, but, but it's also taking a new form. So one of the things that is being talked about now by the European Union and Remainers is the issue of harmonization and, and the necessity of harmonization between our regulations and European yeah. Union regulations. And uh, I'm pretty pleased to see that so far sections of, of Boris Johnson's government have been 
pushing back and are now indicating that they may yeah. that, that sovereignty is a bit of a red line for them yeah. but uh, but i wonder yeah. you've written about the question of harmonization how do you conceive of that in the broader discussion of of self-government and well i think and it's i think it's pretty obvious isn't it i mean so the the fundamental conflict was between sovereignty and influence so if you thought that Britain, which was a, the, the basic argument for our membership of the European Union, was, oh, we should have influence on this yeah. this wide area, and we're prepared to lose our autonomy on a whole range of things in exchange for the influence, right? So now we abandon all influence, right? Because we're saying, no, you do what they're what you want. The idea we both abandon influence and abandon sovereignty. Mm -hmm. Is insane. <laughs> yeah. It's completely insane. I mean, so, you know, I mean, that really is the, the worst of both worlds. Mm. So I think we say to them, look, we abstain. We abandon our influence. We're not going to tell you what to do. We're not, you know, we were in any case the sort of the irritable aunt in the attic who was always making a scene at the family Christmas dinner, yeah. you know. And, and you know, <laughs> you're free of us. You're free of, you know, you must be very pleased to see the back of us. By, but we're going to do our thing. And we want to be agile particularly in the area of uh, scientific, internet, tech, all the things which the instincts of the European Union are intensely, I would say, reactionary. And we're prepared to suffer a bit if need be. But as I said, the idea that we would both abandon all influence and, by the way, say, but nonetheless, you will still continue to, because harmonization, I mean, if it's just, you know, the diameter of a plug, you yeah. know, or the number of... But it's not that. No. It's not that. And by the way, that's not their fear. I mean, their their fear, uh, particularly the French, I suspect, their fear is that we will use this freedom to become more competitive. Mm. Well, it's it's nice that they fear that, but and, and, and therefore we should take advantage of it. Yeah. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. Subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. And it would be great if you could give us a rating and maybe even a review. That is a really good way to help new listeners discover the show. Okay, I want to stick on the question of democracy, but bring it onto another issue, an issue that's close to your heart and my heart, which is the issue of climate change and environmentalism and the problems with the politics of environmentalism, because one of the things that has struck me over the past week or so prior to recording this is, is the possibility that a lot of the things that people like us would have been concerned about in relation to the European Union, which is the use of mysteriously divined regulations to hamper what ordinary people consider to be the right course for the nation. I think, uh, some of that could well shift now from the European Union sphere onto the green sphere. So I'm thinking about the Court of Appeals striking down of expansion at Heathrow Airport. And I'm thinking about the way in which that has emboldened environmentalists, in fact. And we now have people like Hugh Fernley-Wittenstall and George Monbiot, who are openly arguing and agitating for the use of law to strike down pretty much any big infrastructure project. So I just wondered, what do you think is the possibility that anti-democratic methods will le will find their way into other areas of life, which are incredibly important to the future prospects and jobs and livelihoods of the United Kingdom? Yeah, well, we see, I mean, you mentioned the, the case of, of Heathrow, but I think in December, one of these green groups launched uh, a court case to stop the building of a very, very large Drax uh, gas-fired power station. Um, and it was interesting because I think that there was some kind of document produced from government that said that this was not in accordance with the government's commitment to net zero. And the then business secretary, I think it was Ledsom, overruled it and said, no, no, we should go ahead with this very sensibly. And it is now in the courts. And you know, we're not now talking about Heathrow, because Heathrow still exists, you know, in the plenty of planes. We're talking about either this thing being or not being. Yeah. And the, and of course, gas is the most wonderful thing because I remember when I was young, you didn't have gas fired power stations because it was defined as a premium fuel. So it was used for central heating, but the point was it was very scarce and it was called very interesting, a premium fuel not to be used for power generation. 
Now, due to the wonderful technological advances in, in, in drilling and geology and uh, geological surveys, what we've discovered basically is, to all intents and purposes, is a limitless supply of gas in the mm. world, basically. It's in all sorts of strata we never imagined. It's very cheap. It's very clean. And yet these people want to stop it because it isn't wind or solar. Yeah. And, and by the way, they also stop nuclear. Mm. So even if you take the argument, even if you say, oh, we won't have gas, although I can't see on earth, why not? But, you know, this is kind of in defiance of the laws of maths and physics. I mean, you simply cannot have a functioning economy based entirely on renewables. Mm. For, and, and there was a very brilliant man called David Mackay, who was the government's dead now, unfortunately, chief scientific advisor. And he wrote a book called Renewable Energy Without the Hot Air. And he said, if you want essentially a carbon-free industrial economy, you have to have massive investment in nuclear. And, you know, he was, and by the way, he was, he was convinced of the danger of global warming, climate change. He was completely sort of online with that. But he said, this is what you have. And yet, in the Climate Change Committee, this, this Lord Deben's mm. uh, outfit, there's no mention of nuclear power. Just, it's just not mentioned. Yeah. It wasn't mentioned when, when the net zero thing went through Parliament. And, of course, in Germany, Angela Merkel, because of uh, what happened at Fukushima, she obviously thought there'd be a tsunami in somewhere in, in the German plain and immediately scrapped the nuclear program. So they're now... Uh, digging up lignite, which is the dirtiest form of coal that, that exists, open cast coal mining called lignite. And so there's a kind of willful ignorance on the part of, I think, all the politicians, bar a, a tiny handful maybe, yeah. where they simply won't confront the kind of the, the mathematical truth, how the laws of physics demand that we have, if they want net, net zero. Yeah. By the way, I mean, how do you build a nuclear power? I mean, that, a lot of concrete there. You know? <laughs> I mean, that, but, but still, and so it, I think, I think it is a kind of strange lunacy. And I sort of have more respect for Greta Thunberg than I do for any of the politicians. Right. Because I think she at least is logical. She basically says, this is all very bad. Mm. We have to do it now. And we have to live a completely different life, which is almost a pre-industrial yeah. life. By the way, I don't think she and her generation would enjoy it very much, but that's what she's saying. And a lot of her supporters are like that, what Boris Johnson called old crusties, in their hemp bivouacs, I yeah. think was his phrase. Quite good. <laughs> and yet I think our politicians are, are very, very dishonest mm. because they try to pretend to us that we could have as prosperous lives as we currently do with what they call a, quotes green industrial revolution, which is, in fact, de-industrializing. Yeah. Which is, in fact, goes against what the industrial revolution was. Yeah. It's a form of impoverishment. And, of course, if you are rich, you can afford maybe to pay an extra £20,000 on top of what you would normally pay for an electric car, i.e. it costs you that much more for a big electric car over the internal combustion engine equivalent. But... No, not not for most people. Mm. For most people, that is crucifying. Yeah. And I think that the public, I mean, the government, they will come up against it. They haven't yet. But at some point, and we saw it, by the way, in France with the Gilets Jaunes, at some point, the government will suddenly come up against public revolt because the logic of their policies will be impoverishing for millions of people. Mm. I don't see how... I don't see how it couldn't be. Yeah. I mean, the figures, the figures are clear. If you have the kind of carbon tax that the International Monetary Fund, uh, Fund IMF says uh, is required to, I don't know how they work it out, but what they say is required to bring, if everyone did it across the world to, to check the rise in temperatures, you're talking about a doubling in household electricity prices. Yeah. Well, how do people do that? Professor Michael Kelly, who's an emeritus professor of engineering at Cambridge, says that if we were to convert our entire housing stock to make it essentially net zero, he estimates the cost to be about four trillion pounds. Now, if you were to say to the British public, if we had four trillion to spend, how would you like it spent? <laughs> 
that would not be how they would like it spent. No. Even if we had it, which we don't. Mm. So, yeah, I, I agree with you, Brendan. I think it's, uh, I think there will be a huge democratic crunch. Yeah. I don't know when, but, the, but, but there will be, but things like, Heathrow, I don't think that would cause a problem. If anything, it's probably quite unpopular, certainly unpopular in London. I think if Drax can't build this gas via power station, okay, Drax will be annoyed. The people who might have worked there will be annoyed. But again, I don't see that. Mm. I don't think those will cause the, the crunches. And I don't think people are thinking about the courts particularly. I, I, I don't think that's where it will be. It will be at the what I suppose you would call the retail end, mm. when suddenly you're told, by the way, we, you've got this electric car. It's cost you an extra £15,000. Uh, you think, oh, that's great, because I won't have to pay all that expensive diesel or petrol. But no interesting road charging, of course, because we get £35 billion from uh, duty on petrol and diesel, and now we're going to... Yeah. So you thought it was going to be free driving, but no, it'll cost you just as much. And, and by the way, you've had to pay for this. Yeah. And by the way, how is the electricity produced? Right? I mean... Yeah. I mean, someone once said that they're called battery electric vehicles. And this chap, he was another professor of engineering, actually, at um, Imperial. And he said they should be called EEV, which is emissions elsewhere vehicles. <laughs> <laughs> it will be very interesting to see where the breaking point mm. comes. I mean, obviously, in France, it was with the fuel tax, which mm -hmm. then gave rise to a, a protest that lasted more than a year and mm. which was incredibly conflictual at times mm. and, and which very interestingly exploded so many other issues to do with country versus city, people versus mm. the elites mm. and, and so on. So, but, uh, but I think that breaking point could come at some, there was a huge breaking point over EU mm. membership or not EU membership. Yeah. And I think the green stuff lends itself to that too. But yeah. one, thi one thing that yeah. you've just following on from what you said there, you, you've written about the vanity and the hubris off some green policy. So you've pointed out in your pieces very uh, sensibly talking, you know, others may defy maths and science, but you've talked about how the UK generates around 1% of global carbon emissions. Yep. So this desire for the UK to become carbon neutral, carbon zero and all that stuff, which is worryingly an idea shared by all parties, even if they disagree on the time frame. Mm seems to me to be quite irrational because the impact it will have on global carbon emissions or, or, or and then global temperature is a, is a different question as well. In addition to that, the, the impact it will have on, on global carbon emissions is very, very, very small. So, so what? Yeah, not, not measurable. Not measurable. So, so in the UK specifically, this kind of idea that we must, must, must be carbon neutral, we must cut it to zero, whether it's by 2030, 2050, 2070 or whatever. What drives that? Has it become just this kind of um, zealous crusade that is completely separated from any idea of, of facts and impact? I mean, I, I genuinely, I understand where it comes from at the sort of dark green level that it's Malthusian, that it's anti-human, that it sees man as a curse upon the planet. Mm. I understand that very well, and it has a kind of coherence to it. I genuinely am baffled mm. by the political class, if you use that phrase, they're, they're being swept up in this. It is a kind of moral vanity. I think it mm. is the sense that when we walk on the world stage, we want to be seen as the good guys. Yeah that we want to be seen as the most enlightened, that we want to be seen as the most caring. And of course, it's very nice for them to go to these conferences and people to say, oh, you're doing a wonderful job. Mm. You know, of course, it doesn't mean anything to the people back home. <laughs> I mean, and they don't go to these conferences anyway, and they don't get the, the nice hotel rooms and the champagne buffets and all that. But it's, it's personally flattering. I think maybe also, I don't understand at all where it comes from the conservatives. I think on the left, maybe, because socialism or communism seemed to have failed, that to have some kind of new cause, new moral mm. cause, people who are on the left and probably find that psychologically highly necessary to feel that what they're engaged in is a moral cause. And, and the sense, by the way, that the belief that if it is very damaging to countries, it would be countries in the region of the equator. It would be the third, what we used to call the third world, and maybe we still do. And therefore, and I think on the left, there's always been, uh, and by the way, in the churches and, and the Anglican church in particular, this great sort of sense of what we do for the people in, in Africa. Mm. I mean, that has a, an enormous pull, I think, 
and uh, and so they're the ones who are going to suffer. You know, we, we might be okay, but they're going to suffer. But of course, it means nothing there anyway. Yeah. And you might have seen that the nation, the Maldives, have just commissioned uh, four new airports. Now, this is the lowest lying nation in, in, in the planet. First of all, it's interesting they can get these things through. We can't, yeah. obviously. <laughs> but it made me think, well, the Maldives are always the loudest voice saying we're threatened by the rising sea levels. Yeah. But if they really believe that, why are they building all these airports on reclaimed land in the Indian Ocean? It makes me think maybe they don't believe it. <laughs> I do wonder sometimes whether – you know that, that phrase that Boris Johnson was when, – when he sacked – I forget her name now, but he sacked the woman who was going to be running the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. Perry, I think her name was. And she was a former energy minister. And she said that Boris Johnson had said to her, oh, this climate change thing, I'm not sure I get it. Mm. I must say my heart warmed towards Boris Johnson <laughs> then. Because I felt, yeah, a lot of us don't get it. Yeah. And he was just being disarmingly honest. I mean, going back a little bit, uh, Brendan, I mean, I think there is an issue about, you know, air safety or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, the air we breathe. The, the, you know, it probably is better for people living in cities that there are electric vehicles rather than internal combustion engines. It's probably nicer for people in London, for example. But let's do it on that basis then. Yeah. Let's just say, you know, we're concerned about the physical environment. And, and I think that's a, you know, that's a, that's a perfectly reasonable argument to put and people might, but as you imply, out in the sticks, out in the countryside, it's not, that is not an issue. Yeah. You know, I think that's right. I've always thought that it's very important to make a distinction between the practical desire and the practical policies designed to have clean air, a nice environment as much as possible. And what has become uh, uh, this kind of deep ideology, and, and in some cases almost a cult-like desire, just to rein in any form of infrastructure and progress and development and so on. And uh, I think actually one of the most important things for climate change skeptics to do is to draw a distinction between those two things. And, you know, clean air in London, tackling the smog in the 50s and so on, that's absolutely wonderful. And, of course, the the important point is that the wealthier a society becomes, the more resources it can devote to cleaning the environment, which is why the, the China bashing of some environmentalists slightly gets on my nerves because you do have to go through the birth pains of industrialization before you can then have enough resources to devote to cleaning the yeah, environment. Yeah, and, and, and if, if China, I mean, at the moment, they're, they're putting up probably every year as much CO2 as the UK has put up in the last 100 years. Yeah. That sort of puts it in perspective, yeah. frankly. But, you know, if the Chinese people, as I think they probably are in the cities, have a growing problem with what we used to call smog, then the Chinese people will, hopefully the government, I think the government there probably understands that this is an issue yeah. and they will have to deal with it yeah. uh, on a national basis. But the idea that we say to the Chinese, uh, Ed Miliband, who was, was the promulgator of the 2008 Climate Change Act, and he said that, I think his phrase was, you can't overestimate the moral leadership it will give us. That's what he said. I mean, I mean, the idea that President Xi will listen to Ed Miliband, I mean, when it's the question of, as you say, uh, taking the Chinese people out of what we would regard yeah. as abject poverty, yeah. the idea that he said, ah, you know, we weren't going to uh, have all these coal-fired power stations to bring heat and light to our vast areas. But now that you, Ed Miliband, have said we should all have wind turbines, Hmm. I better think again. <laughs> no, I think that that actually cuts to the heart of what's driving the slightly bizarre, unscientifically justifiable obsession with carbon neutrality in, in the UK political sphere is precisely that it, it's about a moral sheen. It's about a moral sheen at home within certain constituencies, certainly not in the population at large, and on the international stage. And it's divorced increasingly from any sense of what's necessary or what's important. But, but one thing that you said earlier that you can understand how the uh, how deep greens would be attached to this cult of carbon neutrality, but it's it's confusing as to why the political establishment would be. I think one of the points you made uh, very well recently in a column was about ex Extinction Rebellion, because ex the curious thing about Extinction Rebellion is that, in my view, they are a bit nuts. And I think most people recognize that they're a bit nuts. They say things which are patently untrue, that billions of people are going to die. 
are they, dying. They are, say. are dying. Yeah. Um, that there's an extinction event taking place as we mm. speak. It's all our fault, and unless we all live in a mm. in a yurt somewhere, it will get worse and worse. And I think most ordinary people think that's. Uh, and we saw this in the clashes in London between a Canning Town, uh, Canning Town, the, the Battle of Canning Town, which is one of my favourite political events of recent years. Yeah. But but you made the point that one of the worrying things, you know, you could we could easily say Extinction Rebellion, a bunch of kind of you know upper middle class idiots playing at being saviors of the world. But you made the point that one of the problems is that too few in the political realm were willing to criticize them or willing to to yeah. push back against them and say, what are you talking about? So yeah. do, do you think and judges of, too by the and, way and judges? So do you think one of the issues is that we just particularly now that the Boris government has been emboldened by the huge vote of uh, December last year, do you think the political class, the political establishment, just needs to take a firmer stand against some of this stuff? I think that it would have to... I mean, I, I did write about the... which people have forgotten about now, the 2000 fuel strike. Well, mm. it was, well, riots, but anyway, the, 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 the lorry drivers basically went on strike. And it was a serious issue, you know, but there were problems, you know, people couldn't get to hospital. I mean, it was a, a massive disturbance. And the fuel price escalator, which, which was designed, I, I think, originally to enhance the long-term well-being of the emperor penguin in the Antarctic or something like that. From that moment on, it was abandoned, mm. you know. So it, it probably takes some kind of public... I mean, hopefully not as violent as it has been in France, which has been appalling, actually. And, you know, pe people's livelihood has been trashed by people kicking in their shops, and, which has been terrible. But nonetheless, it, it would take some kind of check to the, the politics from the people, rather like what lay behind Brexit. I think that it, it is a bizarre thing. Because on the one hand, we have Boris Johnson, who is Mr. Big Project, Mr. Concrete, wants to build a bridge from you know which nobody else thinks is is doable but a bridge from 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 scotland to the island of ireland and wants hs2 you know which is a slightly odd idea of spending 100 billion again you know if you offer the people of birmingham and said and, and manchester and said look instead of this 100 billion we'll give it to you would you, would you like some some other purpose i think we know mm. that they would have better ideas of what to do with the money but nonetheless so you have mr big build Boris Johnson. At the same time, you have the UN conference in, De in December in Glasgow. You have the government sort of it's just reintroduce uh, subsidies for onshore wind or trying to, which is odd. There's an inherent, profound contradiction at the very heart of government. And by the way, I, I remember writing the same when Cameron and Osborne sort of in their pomp and early on, and they spoke about, uh, nothing new under the sun, reviving the North and, and, and reviving industry. And we would not just be a, a financial service country. I mean, we would, this was the beginning of the coalition. We would have a proper industrial policy and blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, Cameron was absolutely sold at that point on the, the this, this green proposal to deindustrialize in effect. And I remember thinking and saying at the time, this is a profound contradiction. They have to decide which are they? You know, are they the party that will revive industry in the, yeah. in, in the North? Or are they the party of the kind of Southeastern liberal voters who think that, you know, anything that comes out of the back of an engine is inherently evil? Which yeah. are they? Yeah. Which are they? Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, they're going to have to resolve it. Yes. And now you and I probably agree on how they should resolve yeah. it, but <laughs> <laughs> they're not listening to us yeah. as much as they yeah. should be. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And the, that contradiction, I think, cuts to the heart mm. of so many contradictions mm. in contemporary Britain. And the question of how they will be resolved is, is really interesting and incredibly important. So the final thing I wanted to ask you was, um, just tying together these two issues of Brexit and, Climate change, which I think are arguably two of the most important issues right now in the UK in terms of how they impact on politics and the future. I think what, what they share in common is an apocalyptism. And the apocalyptism tends to come from those who present themselves as expert 
well-educated, morally superior to ordinary people who are all a bit stupid and voted in the wrong way in 2016 and so on. You have this apocalypticism in relation to Brexit, which was this idea that it would just be the end, the end of the world as we knew it, the return of fascism, it would come to the UK, there would be outbreaks of super gonorrhea, according to one newspaper front page, we'd run out of food, we'd run out of... We'd run out of medicine, everything would go horribly wrong. Mm. And then, of course, there's this kind of... I think Susan Sontag referred to it as apocalypse from now on in relation to environmentalism in particular and other issues too, which is just this general sense of dread that exists among the chattering classes or however we might want to define them. And all of that apocalyptism grates against what I consider to be something quite positive and and, and possibly quite fragile, Mm. which is the reason and the sense of huge numbers of people. That's not to say everyone is reasonable and sensible, but large numbers of people are. And I wonder, I I think we've beaten the apocalypticism in relation to Brexit. I'm not convinced we have in relation to climate change. And I wonder what you, what's your view of how... Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting going back. For example, we had this row recently about eugenics, but actually the eugenicist movement, which was very strong in this country in the 20s and 30s, came entirely from what we would now call the shattering classes. Basically, there were too many people who were ill-bred, you know, living in bad conditions, inherently stupid, and we had to basically eliminate them if we possibly could. Now, of course, for very obvious reasons, the mass of ordinary people rather resented this idea. (laughs) But it was, but you know, it was, it was kind of like de rigueur. I mean, and it was only because of what happened in Germany, I think, that it was checked. And I think that where the, what used to be the acquis, as the French would call it, over the, our membership of the EU and the issue of climate change, what they have in common is that there was complete agreement across the board politically. Mm. It was universally held and you wouldn't hear anyone on the BBC either talking about, uh, until you know, relatively recently, the idea of leaving the EU. It didn't really exist within parliamentary, within the parliamentary debate, within the broadcasting debate. And the problem is when you have a situation in which all the political parties are agreed, the quality of debate is appalling yeah. because there is no debate. And if there is no debate, there's no intellectual muscle. There's no rigor because everyone is just in the same club. And at that point, something bursts in from the outside. Yeah, right. And I think that that's where they have something in common. And, and, and I think you're right. This also will burst in from the outside and it will be very uncomfortable. I hope. Dominic Lawson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.